Praise the Lord. I waited till I made sure I'm, that microphone was turned off before I, I turned on tonight. Doesn't it feel good in the house of the Lord? Aren't you glad love lifted you? Amen. So thankful. So thankful for the love of God. He is the master of the sea and the billows his will obey. What a great comfort we have. Amen. I want to take you tonight, probably to an unexpected passage. I want to go to Exodus 31. And uh, while you are turning there, I'm going to read several verses in the opening of this chapter. And uh, I won't ask you to stand long, but um, as you know, we've been talking about stewardship this month. And uh, we're continuing in that vein tonight, in spite of what it may look like by this passage I'm going to read. Hopefully we'll tie it all together. Give you a little context while you're going to Exodus 31. This is the Lord talking to the children of Israel after they had, or to Moses, after the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. And he had been giving Moses instructions for building the tabernacle. And so he says, the word of the Lord says, Exodus 31 verse 1, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezaleel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in cutting of stones, to set them, and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. And I behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee, the tabernacle of the congregation, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is thereupon, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, and the table, and his furniture, and the pure candlestick with all his furniture, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all his furniture and the laver and his foot and the cloth of service and the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister in the priest's office and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded thee they shall do. The Lord said in verse 3, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works, to work in gold, silver, brass, and so forth for the purpose of the house of God. Amen. Why don't we, before we're seated tonight, just go to the Lord in prayer again, ask him to open our hearts to his word tonight. Lord, we're thankful tonight for the opportunity to be in your house, to be gathered with your people. There is no greater privilege in all the earth than to come together with the people of God and to worship the one true living God. We are grateful for that opportunity. And we ask, Lord, that you would manifest yourself among us tonight. Open our hearts and minds to receive your word and let it take root deep within us tonight, Lord, that it would be fruitful and it would be of advantage to us and it would nurture us and strengthen us. And we are grateful tonight, Lord. We are trusting, we are confident in you and your word. 
we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you, if you study church history a little bit, what you will discover is that after the early church, after the book of Acts ends, there are developments that occur over the next several hundred years. Uh, as you would imagine, and from your experience with other kinds of groups of people, there are things that change over time. And uh, it seems that the, the dominant church moved away from certain ideas and uh, away from uh, ideas that we are now familiar with and moved toward certain, shall we say, ways of thinking about ministry and about service of the Lord and service in church. And uh, over the course of uh, 1,400 years or so, uh, it became necessary and gave rise to what we commonly think of as the Reformation. And there were several things that came out of the Reformation, and that in itself is an interesting study, though we may not be fully in agreement with um, what would be called reformed thinking these days. There would be other, um, other things that we would say that are scripturally important beyond what they would say, I suppose you might say. Uh, nevertheless, the Reformation provided a seedbed upon which the uh, restoration of the apostolic church has happened. And there were some key points um, not least of which you will be familiar with the idea of returning to the Bible as the foundation for all doctrine and the answer for all doctrinal questions. Um, Jesus Christ as the head of the church, that seems so obvious to us, but that was actually a source of great contention and a cause of literal bloodshed, very much bloodshed. Um, And the one that I guess I kind of want to pick at a little bit tonight, and that is the idea of the priesthood of the believer. Now, what I mean by that is that the idea had become ingrained that the average person could not go before the Lord for himself. And it's kind of an Old Testament view. The priesthood in the Old Testament, the purpose of the priest was to serve and to go before the Lord on behalf of the people. And this idea got carried over and and uh, carried along and entrenched in the established church for many hundred years that uh, you needed a priest to go before the Lord for you. Now that has several implications. And one of those implications is that really the only sacred life was a life that was lived in ministry or in vocational um, commitment to the church. What I mean by that is to say, if you wanted to live what was called a sacred life, you had to join a monastery, take some vows, you know, join a nunnery, take some vows of chastity and simplicity and all of these sorts of things and and literally, literally devote your entire life to God. Everybody else was the lay people. They were, uh, it was a sign of a second class Christianity, if you will, the only sacred, the only holy people were the ones who were doing this service and engaged 
um, in the work of the church. And the reformers rejected that idea. And it is well that they did. It's on solid scriptural ground that they did so because actually Jesus Christ was the great high priest. And the work that Jesus Christ did at Calvary, he went before the Lord. He went before uh, God on behalf of the people. He was a sacrifice offered on behalf of the people. And you will remember that at Jesus' death, there were a number of miraculous signs in Jerusalem. There were graves burst open. There were earthquakes. There was the darkening of the sun in the sky. But not the least, please don't forget, there was the, the rending of the veil that was in the temple. And that veil that had separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the temple was torn. And the scripture is very specific that this very thick piece of material or woven cloth, however it was made, it was torn from top to bottom. And there is no human way to do that. It would have, if man had torn it, it would have had to be from the bottom to the top. But the scripture is very plain that that veil was torn from top to bottom and it exposed this holy of holies. It's symbolic of the fact that what Jesus did at Calvary, he prepared for us a way to go into the presence of the Lord. And this is why Hebrews says, you read Hebrews 9 and it's a beautiful um, summary and recapitulation of all of the temple and talking about all of the service that the priest did. But he says, Christ went by, he prepared a new and a living way. And the implication of that is that we no longer, we rejoice in this, we no longer require a priest to go before the Lord for us as believers as those who trust in the work of the Lord Jesus on Calvary, we now, Paul said in Romans 5, we have access to him. Amen. And this has, I guess you would say, other implications, maybe beyond what we normally think about. We rejoice in the fact that we have received the Spirit. And I think we all reflexively know that when we pray, we're entering into the presence of the Lord, and we we understand that we have certain privileges and we have, we can go before the Lord and we can make our petitions known. I don't have to ask somebody to go on my behalf and pray for me. I can go before the Lord for myself and I can, I can praise Him. I can worship Him for myself and I can make petition. I can ask. But there is an additional implication to that and that is that because we have that access and because we enter in, there is a degree of sanctification that occurs for us that, um, that was not available to the Old Testament saints, if you will. Uh, let me say it like this. There is, a, um, there is a temptation for us sometimes to want to compartmentalize the parts of our lives. We want to separate the secular from the sacred. And, you know, we have this, we can fall into this trap ourselves where we come to church and we have, there's a part of us that is engaged and involved in church activities. And then there's the part of us that goes out into the world and deals with reality, right? That's what we say. We got to go in the real world. We got to make a real living. We got to deal with real problems. But I, I would, I would caution you tonight. Don't let yourself fall into that trap. Because for the New Testament believer that has access into the presence of God, 
You are a part of that holy nation. You are a part of that royal priesthood. You have the privilege of going before the presence of the Lord on your own. And there is no more compartmentalization of the secular from the sacred. The reality is that when we receive the Spirit, we are sanctified and we are set apart. And that sanctification is not conditional on where we are. It's not dependent upon our location. It's not just that we're sanctified when we come to church or we're sanctified when we're talking to our sanctified friends. No, we are sanctified. We are set apart And that is the overarching theme of our life. And regardless of what happens under the umbrella of our life, it is happening under the umbrella of sanctification. And I say all of that to say the idea that the only sacred life is the life lived fully committed vocationally to the church, in service to the church, within the walls of a a monastery or within the... Um, the walls of, of some sort of a church building or a cathedral, the idea that that is the only sacred life is patently false. For all of us who have received the Spirit, we are sanctified and our lives are sacred. Now, I keep using these words, sanctified and sacred. The scripture, sanctified is the word where we, it's got the same root, it's all, the etymology is all tied up together with this idea of saints. And that was another concept that got messed up, was that saints were these few individuals, maybe one a century or two a century, that were especially devout and especially gifted and they were especially used by God. No, the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, refers to the people of God collectively as saints. They are the sanctified ones. They are the set-apart ones. They are literally, the word is, the holy ones. Now, you may not feel holy, You may not think of yourself as holy, but you have to recall you have been justified. When you repented and when you were baptized in Jesus' name and when you received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you were justified. And that's a big theological term that just means your relationship with God was set aright. You were put back in proper relationship with him. And one way to remember it is, Justified To be justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. So I am holy, not because of my holiness, but because of his grace, he has set me right. And just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, so we have, in this New Testament, we have trusted in God, we have been obedient, and he has put us into right relationship, such that our lives are sanctified. Now, in the Old Testament, it was all the pieces of the furniture that were separated and sanctified and dedicated to the Lord. It was the candlestick and the table of showbread and the altar and the laver and the foot of the laver and all of the utensils and all of the tongs. You can read through there. There's all these details about what they did to sanctify those, to set them apart and to dedicate them for use within the house of God. But when we're sanctified, we are the sanctified. We are the ones now who are separated. It's not some, oh yeah, we dedicate this building. We say, we're going to be respectful of this building because we all come here and we worship and we, we use this building for purposes of edification and building up the body. 
But it's not so much this building that is sanctified as it is us. And I mean very specifically when I say this, that you and I are separated and set apart for a specific work for God. This is part of stewardship is understanding that whenever, whenever I receive the Spirit, it as, it is as if I'm in the Old Testament tabernacle and all of those various utensils, those are all the different aspects of my life that are sanctified and separated and set apart for the work of God. Remember what Paul said. He said, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which You have from him and is in you and you are bought with a price. You're not your own, but you are bought with a price. What was his conclusion from that? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What he's saying is don't compartmentalize and try to keep the holy, sacred, churchy part of your life separate, you've got to allow that to flow like the Holy Spirit through your life and saturate every aspect of your life. Now, the beauty in the passage that I read to you tonight was that the Lord said to Moses that he had set these men apart, he had put his spirit in them, and he had given given them specific skills For the purpose of building that tabernacle. By this point you're weary of uh, my pounding on this point. But what was the Old Testament tabernacle is actually now the church of the living God. And so as the Lord gave skills to those men in the Old Testament to... Do all of these things, make cunning work in gold and, and cut the jewels and cut the stones and all of these things that he gave them skills to do. He has put similar spiritual skills within each member of the congregation in the New Testament church. And this is one of the ways in which we are stewards of those things is that we take those specific skills just as these men did in the Old Testament. We take these skills and we use them for the glory of God and for the benefit of his kingdom. Now we're all the recipient of this because we have this great and talented music team that leads us in worship in every service. God has given them skills and they dedicate those things and they're using them for the purpose of the kingdom. And they, they help us to worship together. They, they provide enough background noise that those of us that can't sing can't be heard. And that if you're standing close enough, maybe all you hear is them and you don't hear the bellering or whatever that comes out. This is, they're helping us to worship together. Amen? And you can look around you, you know, the church, the church didn't literally, did not get built without the people of God. The church is not maintained without the people of God. Church services don't go on without the people of God. There's not things for the children and other programs taking going, going on in other parts of the building. That doesn't happen without the people of God. These are those, you and I and fellow believers who have a particular capability or a desire to do something, dedicating those things to the Lord. And this is... This is an example of stewardship. This is taking what God has given to us and saying, Lord, I want to use whatever capability I have. I want to use it for your glory. And 
this is uh, what we've really been talking about. And last week we talked about, you know, dedicating our, um, looking at our time and even our thought life. What are we doing with all of that? But then it's more than just what are we thinking about, what are we spending our time with, but how can I... How can I be engaged? How can there be some action that we we get involved and we put our hand to the plow, so to speak, and we actually make progress? Well, this isn't, maybe it's a rather obvious thing, but just as those men, and if you read in the tabernacle and you go the same in parallel in the Kings and the Chronicles and you look at Solomon's temple, God anointed more men to do the craft work in that in that tabernacle as well. What you find throughout scripture is God is willing to use people who have whatever capability they have, and maybe their capability is insufficient on its own, but there's something that happens when the people of God come together and each contributes his parts. And when we do this and we offer it unto the Lord, the sum of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. There's a reason for that. One reason is because you've noticed this. What does it say? Many hands makes quick work. There is a synergy that takes place whenever we work together. And this is natural. You, now, I, you're not going to be surprised by this, but I'm not a farm boy, okay? Everybody knows that. But they say that if you put two animals together to plow, the two yoke together can cover more territory and they can plow more ground than two separate teams of one each. Because there is something that happens whenever we are yoked together, there is a synergy that takes place such that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. God has put us together in the body for this reason of us joining together, us being yoked together. We are connected, we are part of the body, and we put our hands to the plow, each of us, And what we're able to accomplish, even naturally, is greater than what we would do individually. But of course, there is another element in addition to the natural synergies that might occur. There is the blessing of the Lord that comes with unity. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the dew that comes down from the mountain, the psalmist said. And you know... You know how that works. The dew in the mountain starts just as droplets of water. But when you take all of the dew on all of the mountains and it begins to run together, it forms a trickle and then there's tributaries that form together. And by the time you get to the, to the lowlands, you have a raging river that's running together. Because there, again, there's something about us joining together. And it all starts with unity of purpose and a desire to be used of God. So God has not given us our individual skills and abilities and even um, our aptitudes. What I mean by that is the things that we want to do, things that we enjoy doing. God has not given us those things by accident. You know, sometimes we can make the will of God... A very complicated thing. What is the will of God for my life? And especially for young people sitting with, it's like a blank canvas, right? What is the will of God for my life? Does, um, is it a a missionary in Nairobi or is it teaching at 
um, a Bible college in Chicago or Dallas or St. Louis or some, I mean, what the, the possibilities are endless, right? But don't make it too complicated because the aptitudes, if you're submitted to God, you're worshiping the Lord. And I don't mean just like worshiping with the song, but I mean like your life is submitted and dedicated to the Lord and you're sensitive to his voice. And then you just look for areas where you can help. What you will discover is that you have certain aptitudes and certain things that you enjoy doing, and those things are beneficial. And as you do those things, as you engage, doors are going to open that allow you to do more of those kinds of things. If somebody asked <laughs> Louis Lamour, I don't know if maybe half the room knows who Louis Lamour is. They asked him, he said, said uh, you know, how, how do you become a great writer? How do you become a writer? He said, you just got to turn the faucet on. And he said, what do you mean by that? He says, you just got to start writing. Like, I can't give you a list of things to do that will make you a great writer. The only way you're going to be a great writer is if you start writing. And it's just like, you know, when you're learning to drive, you sit in the driveway. You ever tried this where you, you turn the steering wheel on the car, even with power steering, steering the car when it's sitting still is not easy to do. It's a lot easier to steer a moving vehicle than it is to turn the wheel on a car that's just sitting dead in the driveway. So the point is, if you want to find the will of God for your life, find a place where help is needed and get involved. If nothing else, you'll discover what you're not good at. (laughs) And you probably will discover what you're not good at at some point. But it may open another door and you try something else and you think, hey, that now that fits better. That works better. You'll, you folks will notice that since we've been here, nobody has asked us for me to work in the nursery. <laughs> My wife clearly made it known to everybody this is not in the area of his giftings, okay? But in all seriousness, when we, when we are engaged, we find a place there is a place on the plow that fits your hand. Yes, and the Lord told Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. I had a plan for you. And I believe that is the way God works in our lives, that he, he gives us capabilities and aptitudes according to... It's not, it's not us being dealt lemons... And just trying to make lemonade out of it. But I believe that our lives are directed in such a way that God needed lemonade. And so he gave some of us lemons so that we could meet that need. And so as good stewards, as believers in the church, we are to be involved in making good use of the skills that the Lord has given us. But really, that is not the end. That's only... That's really only the first part of this idea of the priesthood of the believer. And in fact, it's kind of the most simple and basic. It would seem if you're going to live for God, whatever capabilities you have, you ought to help the church. That would be a good thing. If you can build and the church needs something built, why are you going to sit home, right? You should be helping build, figure it out, and find a way to help. But but I I think there's another level even beyond that. And this goes back to this idea of our entire life being sacred. 
and there being a sacredness to our life living for God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to want to read a few verses because this is this is going to hit us right where we live. As New Testament believers, we are we are firm believers and I know we as apostolic Pentecostals, we believe the verse says these signs shall follow them that believe. And we believe that. Amen. Every believer has received the power of God and we have there is the Holy Ghost living inside of us. You know, sometimes what James said, if there's any sick among you, call for the, let him call for the elders of the church. And I think what James was saying was, if you're sick, call for someone from the church to come and pray for you. But we have maybe taken that a little too far. And when we're out in the world, we're in the marketplace, we're on the job, we see a friend in the store, we're talking to a neighbor, and they're sick. We want to call for the elders of the church. But the scripture said, if there's any sick among you, let him call for the elders. But for us, when we're engaged outside these walls, we should have the confidence that the spirit of God is dwelling in us and that we're able to pray the prayer of faith and raise them up. The Lord is calling us to be witnesses. You shall be witnesses unto me to the uttermost parts of the earth. We need to have that confidence that, okay, if Pastor Hughes is there, I'm going to say, hey, brother, come help me pray. But if he's not there, I don't have to tell my suffering friend, you got to wait until I can find the pastor. We need to have the confidence to know, whether we feel like it or not, whether we think we're worthy or not, that the Lord will hear our prayer. Exactly what I was just going to say. Do we think we're protecting God's reputation? No, we're worried about our reputation. When really we should just say, you know what? I believe the Lord can heal you. And the Lord can raise you up. So we we believe all of that. We need to take it even a step further. Because we are all, in the New Testament, we are ministers. I quoted this verse, I think, the first two weeks. Paul said that he has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been entrusted with the understanding that is needed to reconcile men to God. This goes back to that stewardship idea. The reconciliation is not mine. Christ laid up mercy. He stored up mercy forever at Calvary. And Paul said, it's been committed unto us to be stewards of the mysteries. So we can pull from that mercy at Calvary and talk to our friends and say, hey, if you're in need of mercy, if you're in need of reconciliation, let me help you. It's not mine, but I know where to get it. And he's, so we're all ministers, but we're not all vocational ministers. And what I mean by that is that not all of us have an office in the church, like a pastor. Not all of us are full-time living our lives fully in the ministry But yet there still needs to be, and I think, I I hope I don't step on any toes here. I don't think as apostolics we need to talk about the ministry and lay people or the laity. Because the model in the New Testament is that every believer is a minister. And don't let me, don't let me confuse you. I believe in order in the church. And I believe in spiritual offices and spiritual order and 
discipline and accountability and all those kinds of things. But when it comes to, when it comes to ministry, God can use any one of us anywhere. Amen? Now, this all is because of order is to be done in submission to the pastor. I keep feeling like I have to circle around, make all this clear. But what, I'm, what I'm really saying is there, is there should be an element of sacredness to our lives regardless of what we do for a living. We may not be vocational ministers. And in fact, the vast majority of us are not vocational ministers. But the reality is that wherever we live and wherever we go, God has put us in these places as ambassadors. And you and I and different ones, we come in, you come in contact with people that I will never meet. I come in contact with people that you will never meet. I have an opportunity to influence people that you will never know unless they were to come here. God is placing us. It's like, it's like leaven in the lump of dough, right? One here, one over there, one over there. And God's expecting that to saturate the whole of society. Now, having said all of that, let's read Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 5. Everybody's favorite word. Servants. Not, Not apostles, not prophets. Not pastors, servants. Be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, trembling and singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Let me, that word servants really should be translated slaves. And this is jarring to our 21st century Western ears. The great apostle is saying, slaves, you need to be obedient to your masters. And then he throws in this crazy phrase at the end, as unto Christ. Wait, what? You expect me to serve him as though he is the Lord? You expect me to serve that master as though he were the one who died for me? Paul is saying is there is a sacredness to the whole of our lives. And that no matter where we are and where we go, there is this pervasive, saturating holiness that goes through all of our lives and everything we do is impacted by it. That's why he would, that's why he says, In Colossians 3, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We love that verse because we say, well, baptism is something we do. But if you keep reading on down, he says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. He starts talking about relationships. And he reiterates this idea about servants. And it all goes back to this idea of whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this passage, I'm not preaching a pro-slavery message, but what I am saying is if the Apostle Paul, you have to remember this is written in the ancient world, and slavery is so common and it's so pervasive, and, and 
Paul was, one thing Paul was saying, and this is, this is just a sidebar, and maybe I run the risk of saying the wrong thing, but Paul was saying, it's not your job to reform and change culture. It is your job to serve the Lord. And so what he's saying here is, servants obey your masters. Now, if it applied in, a, in an era and in a culture and in a relationship like that, How much more does it apply to those of us who have willingly taken on jobs outside the church, what we would call secular jobs? If it applies to servants and masters, maybe for the sake of this evening, we can just read it as employees and employers. And he says, be obedient to them that are your employers, according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers. Don't do it for what it looks like. Don't just put on a show when the boss is around. This needs to be pervasive. This needs to go throughout your whole life. But as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He's saying, whatever you do, whether you're digging ditches, or you're laying pipe, or you're working in an accountant's office, or you're an office manager, or you're a doctor or you're a nurse or whatever you do you need to do it as unto the lord as unto do it as though this is my because really whatever we do we're doing there's a there's an aspect of what we do that is a service to our fellow man whether we're bagging groceries and helping them carry to the car or we're performing open heart surgery it does, it's there is an element of that that is a service to god's image creature That is around us. And so he says, do it as unto the Lord. Do it as though you're doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Forget, if that boss is troublesome, if he's difficult, if he's in a bad mood on Monday mornings and Wednesday afternoons, just ignore him. Think of him as the Lord. Just do what needs to be done. With goodwill in your hearts. Knowing, here's the promise. That whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. You may be a slave. You may be in a situation where you feel trapped and you can't get out of it and you feel like there's no hope. And the Lord says, well, just do what you've got to do as unto me. Do it like you're serving me. And know that I keep good records and whatever good you do, this is stewardship. This is allowing the sacredness of the Holy Ghost to saturate our entire lives. Whatever good you do, I keep good records and you will receive it of the Lord. And it doesn't matter whether you're bond or free. He doesn't stop there. He says, verse 9, you masters, you employers, not letting you off, scot free. You employers, you masters, do the same things unto them. Forbearing threatening. Don't manipulate. Don't threaten. Don't throw your weight around. Knowing that your master also is in heaven. And neither is there respect of persons with him. He is so far, so far high above you. He doesn't care whether you're the boss or the underling. It makes no difference to him. So you gotta, you, you have an obligation to behave accordingly and to work according to the will of God. And what I'm saying tonight is that 
Not only should we be using our specific gifts and talents and capabilities for direct work in the house of the Lord, but I'm also saying that whatever we do outside the church, what we might be tempted to call secular work, actually becomes sacred to the believer. Because what we're doing is whatever doors the Lord has opened, whatever capabilities he's given us to do, whether we're running the refinery or uh, climbing inside towers or whatever we're doing, sweeping floors, whatever we're doing, it's because God has given us the strength and the capability to do it. And he's allowing us to work and to make a little money to take care of things, take care of our families, take care of our needs, and contribute to the church. All of these things, it all fits together. There is nothing within the sphere of our lives that should not be submitted to the will of God. Amen. Why don't you stand with me tonight? I want us to have this sense that really pervades our lives, that what we do, everything we do is living for the Lord. We are, we are living for the Lord from the time we wake up in the morning until we lay down at night. And even through the night, whatever we're engaged in, it is in the will of God and it is for his glory. Remember, Paul said, glorify him in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our attitudes in our workplace are either a positive testimony for him or they are a detraction from him. We must be careful. And I would remind you, when we started this, I guess it was two weeks ago tonight, we talked about the parable in Luke 19 where the Lord had given the pounds to the various servants. And there is a verse, verse 26 of Luke 19. You remember when they came back, to give account, and one servant had turned the one pound into ten pounds, and one had turned the one pound into five, and then the one had not done anything. The Lord said, take the one pound and give it to the one with ten, and the people standing by were puzzled. And Luke 19.26 says, I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. What we have is a blessing for God, from God. And I don't know whether the Lord looks at us and says, you have one pound. I don't know how the Lord reckons. All I know is I have an obligation to be a good steward every day. I have an obligation to press. I don't know when he's coming back, but I've got to keep working. I've got to keep moving because he's coming back at some point. And when the day of accounting comes, I want to be ready. But that verse struck me, and I was reading in Matthew 13, and the disciples, this is where Jesus taught the parable of the seed. And actually in Matthew 13, I think it's Matthew 13, there are, I think, seven or eight different parables about the kingdom. I think there's seven. And the disciples asked the, disciples asked the Lord, why do you teach in parables? Now, if you... If you haven't read closely, our natural tendency is to say, the Lord taught in parables to make plain his teaching. But that's not what the Lord says. The Lord says, I speak to them in parables because seeing they see not and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of, of Isaiah, which saith, by hearing shall you hear and, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall, see, you shall see and not perceive. The Lord is saying, 
there are some things that are not given to them. And they're given to you. In verse 16, he says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And then he says, almost the exact same words he says at the end of the parable in Luke. In verse 17, Matthew um, 13, 12 actually is where he says, Matthew 13, 12, Whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. What I'm, the reason why I wanted to read that verse tonight is to remind us, because we understand, we have all been filled with the Holy Ghost. We understand repentance, and baptism in Jesus' name. It has been given to us. And the Lord said, for those that have that understanding, they, he was equating them with having received much. What he's saying is, if you take that much and you use it, you'll get more. But if we're not good stewards of it, we run the risk of having what we have been given, what precious things we have been given, falling away even out of our own lives, falling into disrepair because we were not good stewards of what the Lord has given to us. I hope this has not been, I hope this has inspired all of us to want to give and want to do. We recognize the privilege that we have of living for God, what it means for God to have entrusted these things with us and that we don't have to fear because it's not really, the pounds are not ours, the mysteries are not ours, the gifts are not ours, but we have the opportunity to multiply those things. Amen. Amen. Why don't we go to the Lord right now and just ask him to bury this in our hearts tonight. Lord, we are so grateful tonight for the powerful privilege of living for you and of having received the mysteries. Paul said we're stewards of the mysteries of God. You have revealed unto us just normal, everyday, average people. You have revealed unto us mysteries that were hidden from the prophets of old. And I trust, Lord, that you will help us and you will work with us and you will enable us, Lord, to multiply what you have given to us. And that you will use us in this hour of darkness to be a light that shines further. And in this hour that we would be a seed fallen into the ground that would spread. Or we would be the, the leaven that's put into the loaf. That Lord would saturate everything that is around us. I pray you would help us to do it. Lord, we will give you the honor and the glory and the praise together tonight. Jesus, you are worthy. Amen. Why don't we offer the Lord a hand clap of praise for his goodness and offer thanks to him in Jesus name. Amen.